Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. How are we doing? Of all the interviews I have done recently, this one, the one you're about to hear, has lodged in my cranium more prominently than perhaps any other interview. Dr. David Rossmarin is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's the founder of the Center for Anxiety, which, side note, sounds like a super fun place. Dr. Rossmarin's thesis is that anxiety is, and these are his words, a gift and a blessing. He contends that it is possible not only to manage your anxiety, but also to thrive with it. His view is that a major contributor to the current epidemic of anxiety that we're seeing in our culture is that we have grown increasingly uncomfortable and intolerant of discomfort. But discomfort, of course, is a non-negotiable part of being alive. So how do we get more comfortable with being uncomfortable? How do we thrive with anxiety? We're going to talk about all of that with David Ross Marin, plus the difference between stress and anxiety, the role of medication in all of this, how anxiety can be transmuted into love, and the spiritual aspects of anxiety. David is just out with a new book called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. I got an enormous amount out of this conversation, and I suspect you will as well. A heads up before we get started that Dr. Ross Marin's audio quality is not quite at the level you might be used to, but I promise you, this will not detract from the truly incredible insights that he has to share. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control, 
So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Dr. David Russ-Marin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a really interesting thesis. Your argument is that we should see anxiety as, and these are your words, a gift and a blessing. Please explain. Sure. If you take a step back, the reason we have an anxiety epidemic is because we are terrified to feel anxious. Mm. In truth, this is a normal human emotion, something that we all experience from time to time. And the more we try to squelch it, the more we try to get rid of it, the worse it gets. By contrast, when we embrace this, there are many opportunities that come our way. Because this is just part of life. Anxiety is going to happen. And the question is, what do we do when it happens? We'll get to the opportunities that come our way, allegedly. But let me just <laughs> let me just pick up on some of the points you made there about, I think you called it the anxiety epidemic. Do you believe that it's being overdiagnosed and uh, at the same time, we're seeing an overprescription of drugs? Yes and no. The truth is, anxiety in our society is out of control. The reason for that is because we are allergic to even low levels of anxiety. And the minute we start to feel anxious, we interpret that as a sign that we're weak, as a sign that something's wrong with us. And that interpretation of threat means we're going to dump more adrenaline into our systems, which then creates a cascade of anxiety, and then that actually creates an anxiety epidemic. So in some ways, the reason why we have so much anxiety is because of diagnosis and because of as you mentioned, you know, we're trying to medicate it away all the time. But at the same time, there is some truth to that because we've, we've really created an actual anxiety epidemic. It's not a fake thing. It really does occur today. We are super anxious. But the root of it is this unwillingness to be uncomfortable. So we get a little pang of anxiety, which is normal. As you've said, if you're not anxious, you're dead. That is part of the human condition. We're all going to worry, feel stressed, anxious. This is quite normal. But there's something about the modern society that we then tell ourselves this story that's what you call a cascade, that this is unacceptable, and we go down the toilet. Correct. And I agree it's a culture as opposed to a modern condition. There are many cultures where individuals and societies don't believe that you have to feel good all the time, and they actually are faring a lot better. So I can imagine some people might feel a little triggered. Are you saying we shouldn't be taking medications for our anxiety? You know, I, I know plenty of people who feel like I can't live without my Xanax. I can't live without other forms of benzodiazepines that would fit in the Xanax family. Similarly, there's Zoloft, which I know is a very different drug. Before we get into the meat of your thesis, let's just clear this off the table. What's your take on medications? I want to make it abundantly clear. I am not against medication. And medication has a very important place in the management of anxiety and in treatment. However, often medication is sold as the solution to anxiety. And the goal of those medications that people are given, especially benzodiazepines, which you mentioned, is to get rid of anxiety. When people are told this will get rid of our pain, this will get rid of how we're feeling, they expect to feel calm and to feel okay all the time. Inevitably, though, we're going to have breakthroughs. We're going to have 
pops of anxiety that occur during tense moments, sometimes when we're not expecting them at all. And usually what happens is when people, especially benzos, are taking them, their anxiety tends to worsen over time mm. if it's used as an anxiety squelcher. Mm. Other medications, you mentioned you know, Zoloft or other medications, non-benzodiazepines, I think are a little better because they can tamp down people's anxiety in general as opposed to stopping it in the moment. So that gives us some opportunity to practice tolerating anxiety. So it depends on how the medications are used. But in general, I'm not against them. I just think we have to be very cautious. Yeah, so I'll say a little bit about how I use the medications just to normalize this for everybody. So I have a panic disorder and it's shown up on camera quite famously or infamously and also in situations where I might feel claustrophobia. I will use a benzodiazepine like a clonopin or an Ativan as a kind of bridge you know, I don't use it much now, but when I was in a really heightened state of panic disorder around getting on planes and things like that, I would use it as a way to like get me on planes I had to get on. And then concurrently, I was doing exposure therapy, which we're going to talk about today, which is just learning slowly to get comfortable with the discomfort of the claustrophobia. So spending hours riding an elevator with my shrink at the Westchester Mall. So I use the benzos as a bridge. Now I don't use them when I get on a plane, although I have them and it's like an escape hatch if the anxiety gets too strong, but I haven't had to use them. So I'm just getting comfortable with the discomfort. Simultaneously, I also use Zoloft on a standing basis, very, very low dose, just as a kind of protective measure so anyway, how does all that sound to you? And is that potentially a model for how people could think about it in their own lives? I mean, it sounds perfect. And it's what I was trying to convey before. I don't know if it came across. Basically, from what I understand, you're taking the anxiety down to a manageable level, which enables you to face it. Yes. So it doesn't become completely overwhelming in the moment. But your goal isn't to get rid of your anxiety. It's to bring it down to a point. It's kind of like a mortgage where like can't afford to pay the entire house at once, but I can pay it off in chunks. But I'm going to pay it off. You know, if you stop making your payments, then that's a different story. It's not a substitute for dealing with anxiety by facing it, but it does make it tolerable so you're able to manage it. Is that yeah, fair? it's very clear. And so the non-negotiable here is that we need to deal with it. Um, so what do you think is going on that so many people seem unwilling to deal with it? Well, the medical community in many ways, and I think other institutions that we have, has sent a problematic message that we need to feel even killed and happy and healthy, mentally healthy all the time. And that's just, it's just not realistic. Part of being human is that we're going to have days that it's hard to get out of bed or it's hard to have conversations with people or we're, you know, feeling just pummeled by our emotions sometimes. This is such a human characteristic. And I just think we're missing the boat. You have written that part of what may also be happening here is that we have a society that is, in your words, obsessed with control. Definitely. We have these amazing devices today, right? You know, these electronic appendages that can give us all sorts of information. And This morning, I was communicating with people on three continents in the span of a couple hours. We have such a sense that we can accomplish things and, and do things. And our emotions, we expect that those will follow suit, like the machinery that we're dealing with today. It's just not going to happen. I mean, human beings are not built that way. We're built to think fast and also to think slow, you know, have multiple emotions occurring even at the same time, complex emotions. That's part of being human. That's part of the beauty of being human is that we're not machines. We're not even killed all the time. 
Another point you've made, and I'm staying at a high level here before we get into this argument you make about anxiety being a blessing, which I just for the record, I agree with. You point out that there's this interesting thing that's happening right now that anxiety, and I see this in my personal conversations, and I feel like sometimes I get in trouble for making the point that you make in your book, which is that anxiety is at record levels. And yet by most objective measures, personal security, financial security, access to information, access to education, we've never had it better. And now you are very careful to argue that that doesn't mean that climate change isn't a massive problem, bigotry, inequality. These are all huge problems. And yet looked at from 10,000 feet, things are objectively better. So what do you think explains that delta? And is it possible that people like you and I find this argument resonant because we're upper middle class white men? It's definitely possible. And um, it could be my bias of privilege. At the same time, I'm also looking at global data. If you look at middle-income countries, the levels of anxiety compared to upper-income countries is half. And if you look at lower-income countries compared to middle-income countries, it also, it's half. There could be detection factors, of course, but if you look at levels of suicide, you know, objective behavioral measures of mental health, if you look at levels of people going on disability, you know, in the middle of the 20th century where there were world wars where people were facing Korea, Vietnam, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. These were, these were massive national crises that we faced. Things are so much worse today emotionally than they were back then. So I don't think it's just my bias. You know, maybe there's an aspect of that, but I don't think it's only my bias. I think that this is an objective reality that in some ways, certain challenges that we have as a society actually make us less likely to experience an anxiety epidemic. What explains the Delta? When you live in a middle-income or lower-income country or where you've been through challenges in life, you expect to feel unmoored sometimes. It's part of life. And when you speak to your friends, it's not an impression management. Oh, I'm feeling great today. Oh, I'm looking great today. No, it's a tough day. It's a tough week. And that gets parlayed into actual emotional wellness, ironically, over time. We expect to be totally, like I said before, even keeled, never to have a bad day. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that is just not going to happen. That, that's not human. <laughs> It's just so it really comes down to expectations. If you expect Correct. everything to be rainbow barfing unicorns, then you're in for some nasty surprises. You are going to suffer. If you see suffering as a part of life, well, then uh, you're more resilient. Exactly. I might say if you see pain as a part of life, you're less right. likely to suffer. Right. I might even say I might right. even say that. Is it also that there's something about modern wealthy countries where we have lost a sense of community. We're isolated, we're individualistic, and that could contribute? Certainly. I also see that as a symptom of the larger problem. Relationships are messy. And the closer relationships that you have, the more messy they are. I mean, people today in teens, even 20s, are less likely to date than ever. A lot of the relationships are pixelated because it's so much easier to deal with two dimensions than a three-dimensional person who, like, has gaffes and stuff comes up. And when we want to have a clean, predictable smile all the time, it's a lot harder to have those relationships. So I think our individualism is actually coming from this place of needing to be in control all the time and needing to feel good all the time. So interesting. Um, I tend to agree. What about mental health awareness? I read an interesting quote recently from some public health official who was saying, yes, to a certain extent, obviously, it's great that the stigmas around anxiety 
chemical dependency, depression, loneliness, that the stigmas have eroded massively. And so that's all great. But this person was saying, when I see Mental Health Awareness Day, I wince a little bit because we're too aware of it at this point and we're too focused on it. Does that resonate with you? It does to some degree. You know, I think if one positive thing came out of the pandemic, it's that people actually started revealing their emotional variability. If you look at Simone Biles, she's a real champion of being able to say like, hey, you know, I'm just not going to compete here because of how I'm feeling today. So in some ways, I see that as a win. In fact, in many ways, I see that actually as a win. I think that we do have to combat this general approach in our society of having to feel and look good all the time. And when we accept that distress is a part of life and we're able to talk about that, I actually think it makes us stronger. And yet, do you worry at all about the kind of fetishization of our mental states that it, as soon as we feel anxious, we make a distraught TikTok post about it? And is there a downside to awareness? To some degree, I think the pendulum does have to swing before we're going to get to a place of regulation. And maybe we're seeing the pendulum swing, which might be a little bit too far in some cases. You know, one thing that does distress me is when people are involved in things like self-injury online. Because there's a contagion effect, and we know that when people are exposed to that, then that can sort of give people ideas of what to do. So modeling the behaviors, I think, is different than modeling a vulnerability of speaking about how we feel. Like if someone's on TikTok or any social media platform speaking about the fact that they're anxious, you know, what you did was so heroic. You know, even today, just speaking about panic disorders openly, I see that as such a positive, healthy embracing of your humanity, which makes you somebody who's human, somebody who's so relatable. I wish more people would do that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, we're going to dive into the three-part argument of your book, but let me ask one more foundational definitional question, which is how do you define anxiety? Anxiety shares the same brain circuitry as fear, which means that anxiety is the fight or flight system in action. Adrenaline goes through our blood We have a cascade, a whole series, a host rather, of physical symptoms that occur. Everything from dilation of the pupils to uh, muscle tension, increased breathing, increased uh, blood flow through the body. And all of that is intended to prepare us just like a fear response. The only difference between fear and anxiety is that fear is a response to a real threat, a present threat. Anxiety is basically a false alarm. It's when the fear system gets triggered, but it didn't need to. There wasn't actually a saber-toothed tiger, so to speak. There wasn't actually uh, an imminent threat. So yeah, anxiety is unnecessary, but it's not dangerous. It just means that your fear system is working. In fact, if anything, it's uh, an indication that you're uh, neurologically and, and otherwise well and can respond to threat if you needed to. Well, that leads us nicely into the three parts of your argument that anxiety is is a gift. Your thesis is that working with anxiety can enhance our lives on three levels. And the first level is that it enhances your connection with yourself and that it teaches you about your own strengths and areas where growth could be called for. Can you just say more about that part of your argument? Sure. One more point before getting into the meat of it. I'm not saying anxiety is fun. (laughs) Okay. I certainly have a reasonable amount of anxiety that I experience. And the days and the moments where I'm feeling panicked, when I'm feeling uncomfortable, when I'm feeling even a little faint, it's not pleasant. Those are not the moments that I'd want to write home about. But when I respond to myself and when I respond with others and when I try to use it in a constructive way, I find that it 
immeasurably enriches my life um, in ways that I would actually prefer to live with that distress than without it. So that's where we're going here. I'm not making light of anxiety in any way. And I've worked in acute psychiatric settings and I have a visceral sense of how bad it can be. But that doesn't mean that we can't, I'll use the word parlay again, that into something positive in our lives. Point well taken. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. The therapist in me wants to ask, since you started to experience panic, would you say you're more self-aware? Yes, um, by necessity, because from my first, not my first panic attack, my, my most public panic attack back in 2004 on television, I knew I needed to deal with it in order to continue working. And that just got me to therapy. So yes, I am by necessity more self-aware. Okay, fine. Granted, by necessity, but you became a more self-aware yes. person. I can't tell you how many of my patients say the exact same thing. Almost all of them will say that they're more self-aware because of it. Do you think you're more self-compassionate? For sure, but it really took me a long time to get to that piece of it. That's a late development. You know, it makes sense. I think in our society, we're really hardest on ourselves, maybe even more than others. In almost all treatments for anxiety, whether it's CBT, which I practice, or DBT, which I also practice, or even dynamic or other forces of psychotherapy, are often about becoming more aware, more self-compassionate, and recognizing that we just have these limits and we're going to have these feelings and that's totally okay. That's a part of it. It's such a healthier way to live. Would you say that anxiety has enhanced your relationship with yourself? Yes, 100%. You know, it's something that we often miss because when you're going through anxiety, it's painful and it just sucks. But Often people look back and they're like, whoa, like, I'm just a different mm. person. Here I am several years later and you know, my connection with myself is different. But isn't that like, think about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey that we are designed to, you know, over the course of our lives, face challenges and grow as a result? I think we are equipped to face challenges. Often we shy away from them because of the way that we feel. And if we try to squelch our anxiety and just get rid of it, then... In addition to it being futile, it usually doesn't work, usually makes our anxiety worse. But in addition to that, I think we miss out on the opportunity to really know ourselves. Coming up, David Rossmarin talks about the difference between anxiety and stress, how anxiety can actually, and this is counterintuitive, improve your relationships with other people and yourself, and why he's a proponent of exposure therapy. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff 
at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. But the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. So what's the difference between anxiety and stress? Yes. So stress can resemble anxiety in that some of the symptoms are, are the same, often the muscle tension and difficulty breathing. The heart rate doesn't quite go as high, but it can be elevated in general. The difference, though, is that you're not dealing with an immediate threat. You're dealing with a low-grade chronic threat. I mean, the simplest definition of stress is when you have too few resources to deal with the demands that are in front of you. Like If I'm 10 minutes away from somewhere and I have to be there in five minutes, I'm going to be five minutes stressed. The difference between my resources and demands equals the amount of stress that I have. And wait, I understand that as being the definition of stress. How does that differ from anxiety? So the symptoms are similar because it's activating a a similar set of processes in the body. And also the relationship is that when I feel anxious about something, essentially I'm perceiving that I have a threat in my life and I don't have the resources to be able to deal with it. So there's a similarity between anxiety and stress. The difference is that with stress, it's only due to that difference. With anxiety, it could be like a perceived thing. Like I'm really nervous about something that just isn't going to happen. So if we think about whether we're experiencing stress right now, which is mathematical, you know, and measurable, it's the difference between our sure. resources and our capacity, and anxiety, which may simply be a problem with our perception of the events. Yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Often people who have chronic stress will take on more things in order to avoid recognizing how stressed they are the type of people who will take on those extra projects at work, take on additional financial commitments, be volunteering in their community, doing all sorts of great things when they're already completely tipped in terms of their level of resources is substantially less than the existing demands. You know, I think many people do this, myself included sometimes, in order to, again, avoid that feeling that I'm not in control. It's hard to accept that there's only so much that we can do. So there's a lot of similarities between stress and anxiety, although there are differences as well. 
I imagine they're often comorbid because as I hear you talking here, I mean, it feels like, yeah, I I personally have a lot of stress, often self-created, and it may be that I'm creating it because of my anxiety. Sure. It's much easier to focus on your to-do list than than whether it's panic or OCD or generalized anxiety disorder and lots of worries, you know, clipping through your head. Some people find, I wouldn't even call it solace, it's distraction. It's just sheer distraction by piling on the list of things to do as opposed to dealing with what we really got to deal with. Joseph Goldstein is a great meditation teacher, was staying at our house recently, and he and I were talking about, um, this is a conversation he and I have been having for a long time when he goes into Uncle Joseph mode and points out that I do too much stuff, even though I have, as I often say, serially divested myself of various careers over the years. His point is like, you're still working seven days a week. And I, I think at the root of that is anxiety or an irrational fear of being homeless at some point. And I think a clinging to the various trappings of late stage capitalism that I've been able to accumulate and an unwillingness to say, you know what, I'm not sure it's worth all of the energy to maintain. Yeah, I've definitely been there myself. (laughs) Uh, Having an academic position at Harvard Medical School, it can be a tough environment and having to keep up with my colleagues. Um, in terms of productivity, and then also having a, a clinic which grew into a string of now seven offices and 80 staff, you know, plus a caseload. You know, at certain points along the way, I definitely had to really take inventory of my own feelings and what am I doing? And like, why am I taking on so much? And I guess, you know, it's not only capitalistic, I'm also, you know, trying to advance the world and we are dealing with a mental health crisis. So I have all those you know, good reasons to be doing this. And maybe there are excuses though at some level. Reckoning with that was just such a good process for me personally, I'll tell you. And uh, I think it actually made me a more effective administrator, a more effective academician. So one of the reasons I'm doing this book, which is more public facing, because I just see I want to have a bigger impact, have to scale back from other things in order to do that. So you said reckoning with that was really helpful. So what did that reckoning look like and where did you net out? Paring down, thinking this is not going to be my responsibility. I'm going to delegate it and uh, you know watch other people struggle with this and deal with it. Um, there's a great phrase that I came across recently. Apparently, it's a Polish proverb. Not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's just not my problem. And I can't be dealing with everything at a certain level. I'm not just at a certain level. I am simply human. Uh, have to accept that and focus on what I really want to focus on. Without anxiety, I never would have come to that. So this essentialism, as it's been called, of like paring down to what you view as essential to your priorities, I can imagine it required some sacrifice in terms of control. But did it also require any material sacrifice? It certainly required confronting that possibility Mm. along the way, which was scary. You know, I'm sure you've had to do the same thing. Well, yes, I quit a quite a lucrative uh, career as a news anchor. And yet I still think there's more reckoning to be done. I'm curious, what does the reckoning look like for you? How do you work with your own anxiety? Do you have a therapist yourself? Are you applying what you teach sure. to your patients? You mentioned CBT and DBT. People may not know what that is. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the book that I wrote is my own toolkit of what I do in order to handle not only anxiety, but you know any number of struggles and stressors coming along the way, and also tools, of course, that I've used with countless patients over the years, and many examples of that. I'm a runner. I'm a long-distance runner, and uh, that keeps me sane. 
you know, meet with my trainer once a week. Very blessed to be able to do that. My family spend, you know, a lot more time these days than I used to with my family, which is amazing. And uh, I try to just be myself. If I'm struggling, you know, I'll talk to my wife about it. Use those as opportunities to connect as opposed to just pretending everything's okay. I think spiritually, which is a piece of the book, but you know, not the main piece. That's also an aspect for me, just coming to terms and accepting my humanity, my very small pace in the universe, my lack of control. And what I really want to accomplish in this world as opposed to a lot of the... I love that word, essentialism, you said before. But the getting down to that. Mm-hmm. Like, who am I? Mm-hmm. What can I do? I think without distress, I just wouldn't have any of it. Yeah, that all lands for me. And like you, I personally would not place myself at the end of that process. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's just ongoing. <laughs> well, let, let's learn a little bit more about the nitty gritty tools you use with your patients and that you describe in the book, especially in this first part of the book. And the thesis of the first part of the book is that anxiety and distress can help us improve our relationships with ourselves. You've mentioned self-compassion. What specifically do you recommend for people in this regard? Yeah, when you're feeling anxious, Don't take on a new project that day. Don't run away from it. Be kind to yourself. Try to get a little more rest. Try to do something that you enjoy. Those are days for self-compassion. You know, if you're having a tough time, that's not a day for fast food. You know, that's a day to go out somewhere nice or to actually spend the time making yourself dinner. Go for a run. Do what you like. Go to a movie. Call up an old friend and hang out with them. I mean, there's so many. I'm just giving, you know, random examples here. But like I said before, like both of us said before, when we're feeling anxious, sort of just plow ahead in order to stop thinking about the anxiety, in order to pretend that we're still in control, as opposed to just letting it wash over us, accepting it, and being kind. I can imagine people hearing this and saying to themselves or shouting out loud, well, I can't be kind to myself today. I can't cook a dinner, go for a run, call a friend. My boss keeps calling me. My kids are crying. I don't have a choice. There's no let up. Yeah. That's why there are multiple skills in the book. You know, if it's an interpersonal thing with the boss, there might have to be a heart-to-heart conversation that they're like, hey, I'm having a really hard time right now. And I need to know what I really have to get done because all of this is not going to happen. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of courage to be able to do that. And I recognize not everybody can do that and to keep their jobs. So that's also another factor, which is genuinely challenging. And there have to be other tools that we use in such circumstances. But more often than not, I've found that when people are adding value to a company, especially in this climate, there's some degree of, I'm not going to call it job protection, but people want to keep them and work with them. And if they're going to have a tough couple of weeks, and then they're going to be back in full swing or whatever it is, better to have that conversation. And I often encourage my patients to just be upfront, or at least to talk to someone else at work. If you can't talk to your boss, then a work colleague, you know, I'm having a hard time. Can you cover for me? Can you help me out? There are strategies and ways to manage it, but it doesn't come from pretending that everything's okay and surging forward. That's not the strategy. You mentioned earlier CBT and DBT. That's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. What are some basic tools? I know you go into greater detail in your one-on-one sessions with patients and in the book, but just some things the kids can try at home listening to this podcast. Um, Exposure therapy is a cognitive behavior therapy tool. In some ways, it's the CBT tool for anxiety. And uh, as you've spoken about before on this podcast and and personally, it involves facing your fears and not shying away from them. What's amazing about exposure, firstly, it's, it's very real, it's very raw, and it's very painful. And I'll tell you, as a therapist, it's so hard to watch your patients going through exposure therapy where they're 
confronting their fears and so viscerally uncomfortable. Not to mention, I don't ask my patients to do anything I wouldn't do myself. So you mentioned claustrophobia before. So you know, I've been in all sorts of nooks and crannies. And uh, when people have OCD, patients have obsessive compulsive disorder, there's a lot of gross stuff that I'd prefer not to talk about on the air that I certainly had to do alongside my patients in order to help them habituate and expose themselves, so to speak, to the anxiety. But I actually wanted to get your take on this. Do you think that going through exposure therapy and facing your fears has made you more resilient in general, not just for panic, but more broadly in life? A thousand percent, not just 10% and not just 100%, a thousand percent. Yes. How so? It's a, I mean, this is a part of being alive is, is just to go back to Joseph Campbell, maybe we're not built for this, but we're equipped for, and I think it is a great way to infuse meaning to go through hardships and learn from it and come out stronger on the other side. And I have found that staring down the barrel of a resurgence of panic where I thought, okay, well, this just proves that I'm a fraud and a failure and I cannot imagine getting back on a plane to slowly and gently, systematically confronting the fears and seeing that I could do it just gave me so much confidence in my own strength and in the power of my mind and the human mind generally that, yeah, it's made me better able to tolerate lots of life's slings and arrows. And I want to emphasize I'm a complete wimp in in many, many ways. Uh, I'm just Uh, maybe a little bit less (laughs) than I used to be. So I see we still have to work on our self-compassion. Okay. (laughs) Well, I just don't want to oversell. I'm just thinking of all the examples of like how much whining I was doing to myself just today, an hour or two ago about feeling overloaded and another thing on my list. And I'm always working on it. And I suspect I'm not the only one. Yeah. That's the difference between thriving and flourishing, which I'll maybe get to in a minute or two. But you know, I just want to ask you another question would you have started 10% happier if you hadn't overcome aspects of your anxiety with exposure therapy? Would you have had the guts to you know, leave as an anchor and launch this new project? Uh, no. No, I wouldn't have known there was a project to start outside of That's fair. chasing the news. No. That's fair. So many of my patients who go through exposure therapy have a renewed courage and strength mm-hmm. to be able to face any matter of life. I mean, it's going to make you nervous when you're starting something brand new and habituating ourselves to anxiety is just a good, healthy life skill that exposure therapy teaches. And it just makes it so much easier to achieve our goals and dreams. What's the difference between thriving and flourishing? So flourishing is when people are doing well in their careers. Things are going great in relationships. You know, health-wise, things are fine. Monetarily, things are going great. Often that's because of external circumstances. Right place, right time. Markets are good, right? It's the economy stupid, as they say. Thriving can occur whether you're flourishing, whether you're languishing, whether you're distressed or even severely distressed. I've worked on inpatient psychiatric units uh, within the Harvard Medical System at McLean Hospital. I've seen moments of thriving on the inpatient units where patients who are severely distressed have moments of connection. They have an aha moment. They face their fears they open up about something that's really on their mind to a therapist or to somebody else on the units. There are moments of bravery. There are moments of, moments of light in a, in a day that's otherwise very dark. 
you know, I said it before and I'll say it again, dealing with anxiety and thriving with anxiety is not, it's not always fun, but it is so worthwhile. And over time, when we learn to do this, you know, you look back two, three, four, five years later and you're just a different person. Coming up, David talks about how anxiety can be transmuted into love, why we often use anger to cover up for our fear and anxiety, and the spiritual benefit of thinking the worst. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's move to the second and third parts of your argument for anxiety being a gift. The first, as we've just discussed, is that it can improve your relationship with yourself, can improve your confidence and resilience. The second is that it can improve your relationship, anxiety can, with other people. How so? Yes. Now, I want to clarify, it does not always do this. In fact, many times when we feel anxious, the last thing we want to do is to show that to other people and to open up to them. And often when relationships do make us anxious, we do one of two things. We fight or we flee. Um, There's an activation of the fight or flight system. Humans are social beings. We're meant to be social beings. We thrive when we're social. And because of that, our relationships matter a lot. And I would also say because of that, when we feel anxious, there is something so emotionally, intimately connected about speaking to someone else about how you feel. Now, whether that's a friend, or whether that's a therapist, or whether that's a romantic partner, opening up about how you feel, being vulnerable, taking the risk that someone might reject you or judge you, allowing them to be there for you, and creating that secure, connected bond, it's almost like anxiety is the tool that we can convert into love. I would go as far as to say that in our interpersonal relationships. How does anxiety get transmuted into love? What's the mechanism there? So I'll explain it like this. Let's say you have a couple, and we'll just take a romantic scenario, and they're arguing over, I don't know, a financial matter. You spend too much, you know, you're too cheap. So the recriminations go on for years and years and nobody gets anywhere until they actually start having conversations about their anxieties. Why am I so scared that you're being cheap? Often what will come out, and this actually did, is a current example of a couple I'm dealing with now. He was afraid about her being cheap was because he didn't want to lose her and felt like, if I'm not providing, if we're not materially comfortable and able to enjoy what we have, then maybe this relationship is something you're going to get fed up with and actually leave. 
finally, like after months, that fear was expressed. The root of the anxiety came out. It was such an aha moment in therapy because, you know, he was able to get this reassurance, like, I'm not going anywhere. Like, this isn't about the money. It never has been. Hmm. You know, and then mutually, when she explained to him, like, well, you're spending too much money, what came out was, and he knew this, so he kind of should have figured it out beforehand, but her parents had financial struggles when she was a kid and almost split because of it. And it was very painful for her to watch them struggling. So she really needs to see a bank balance with a certain amount. Otherwise, she panics. But again, it was all about love and the relationship. And once they communicated that they were afraid of losing each other, it settled things down so much. It takes a time to get there, though. So just to get into the algebra of this alchemy, if you can, in your interpersonal relationships, be open about the shit that scares you, that can lead to a thriving of the relationship. And that's how anxiety leads to love. Yes, as long as it's expressed in a vulnerable way, it's received by the other party as you being vulnerable. Because if you've done this after years and years of criticism, they're not going to hear it as a vulnerability. They're going to hear it as a criticism. So you might have to do it for a long time. Like it could take six months of it, just saying it and being consistent. You know, you mentioned alchemy. and In some ways it is, but in other ways... To actually get the formula right, you know, you have to wait for a lot of weather to pass and mm -hmm. it can be complicated depending on what's going on in the background of the relationship. However, notwithstanding all that, yeah, when we explain our vulnerabilities, when they're received as vulnerabilities, and when that person is able to be there for us, which usually, although not always, they are, sometimes they might not be there, by the way. They might actually decide to go, which is terrible when it happens, but then at least you know where you stand. But when they want to be there and you show them that you need them and they hear that you need them, that's called secure attachment. This is straight out of Sue Johnson's emotionally focused therapy. And it's a very powerful technique. Hmm. Is another mechanism by which anxiety can lead to improved relationships that once you have more self-awareness, it can inexorably lead to you understanding that other people have their own minds and lives and interior ups and downs and therefore you have some empathy for them? There is something about experiencing our own emotional plane that makes us more in tune to the feelings of other beings. And I think it's also reflexive. Like sometimes being more empathic and being more compassionate towards others can help us to be more compassionate and empathic towards ourselves mm -hmm. and even more in tune with our own mm -hmm. feelings. So these two can build on each other in a positive way. Yes, I mean, that's what I sometimes jokingly refer to as the cheesy upward spiral that, you know, as you get cooler with yourself, you get cooler to other people, your relationships improve. And because the relationships are probably the most important variable in human flourishing and thriving. You get yeah. happier and then your relationships get better. And so like, yes, you can access the spiral from either side. You can start by being self-compassionate or you can start by being of service. And either one of them can, in the right circumstances, lead to a positive self-reinforcing upward spiral. 100%. So at the beginning of this part of the discussion, however, you did say anxiety doesn't always lead to better relationships. And I suspect what you were pointing at there is that if we're unwilling to accept our anxiety, if we're going to shut it down through denial, compartmentalization, polypharmacy, shopping, whatever it is, then we may end up being closed off to other people's emotions. And that's the opposite of the cheesy upward spiral. Yeah, we're going to be closed off to other people's emotions and also our own. And if you're not willing to be anxious, it's very difficult to have a close loving relationship. Mm. If you're more likely to blame the other party as opposed to saying, I need you, it's so much easier to say, why are you doing that? That's dumb. As opposed to, 
hey, when you do that, it really makes me nervous. <laughs> like it actually raises my heart rate. Hmm. It makes me uncomfortable because of X, Y, and Z factor. Would you mind changing your behavior? Not because you're doing anything wrong. I'm not blaming you. I'm just sharing my need. That's the difference. But it's not easy to do that. And sometimes when we feel anxious, we're more likely to blame. We're more likely to get into fight or flight. Sometimes we're less likely to see other people's feelings mm-hmm. because we're so wrapped up in our own. Yeah. But if we're ready to accept that anxiety is here to stay, we just have to use it in a positive, constructive manner, then that opens up these doors. And any of those doors can lead to just new vistas for relationships, emotional connection and intimacy, physical intimacy. I've seen people transformed over this. Back to the negative side of the equation, you write about the connection between anxiety and anger. And you came close to the notion just a few sentences ago. And I find that very resonant because I remember being on my high horse about something in some therapy session, pissed off, self-righteous in some way. And the therapist said, well, sometimes we think of anger as a secondary emotion, that usually there's something underneath it that you're covering up with the anger. And for me, I find that's usually fear or anxiety. You've got a great therapist. I'll tell you, I was not really tuned into the relationship between anxiety and anger until the pandemic. And the Harvard Gazette called me up and they're like, what's with all the seething anger that we're seeing in this world? Do you have anything to comment on it? And I had to think long and hard before I took that interview, but I did. They published the piece and this is exactly what I came to and what was, was written about in that interview. I think you said it so beautifully beforehand. Like when we feel anxious, it's much easier to convert that into anger. Hey, you're doing something wrong. What's wrong with you? Like, you know, as opposed to really what's going on at a fundamental primary level, which is I'm very uncomfortable with something and our relationship matters, which means I'm kind of locked in here. Like, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So I'm kind of stuck. So I'm trying to get you to change through showing anger as opposed to showing my vulnerability that like, hey, I really kind of need a hand here. So what do you think is the move if we're doom scrolling and feeling all this rage at people we disagree with or throwing our shoe at the television or whatever it is? Is there some sort of inward move we can make that might make those moments a little different and potentially could scale up to a healthier society? Yeah, I think there are a lot of moves we can make. First is, I think we have to be kind to ourselves and recognize that we're going to be frustrated and it's for damn good reason because there's a lot of stuff happening today, which is on both sides, any sides, whoever you are, that are just bona fide frustrating and crazy. And I think we have to accept that as opposed to trying to get rid of it. Speaking with other people and talking to them about how it makes us feel vulnerable that there are certain people doing certain things and what the implications might be and what I'm really afraid of, as opposed to the anger. I think the more we speak about the primary emotion of fear, as opposed to the secondary emotion of anger, that's a key one. The biggest one, though, relates to kind of part three of my book, which is accepting our humanity. Like throughout all of human history, there's only so much that we can do. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight climate change. I'm not saying we shouldn't do what we can. But at the end of the day, like I'm one person and, you know, I'm not going to give up in my area, in my area of specialty, in my unique struggle. But at the same time, there are many fights that I'm just, not my circus, not my monkeys. I don't have a dog in that fight. And accepting that is so hard. It's so hard in an era of history where we seem to have so much control. So I think we need to accept it. I just think we need to recognize our very small place in the world. And I think that makes us better people when we do that. You referenced the third 
part of your book, which you entitle Enhancing Your Spiritual Connection. And so by spiritual in the sense, you mean like in the sense of a positive smallness that can be a feeling of awe in the face of the unfathomable hugeness of the universe? Definitely. Also, it's not a religious matter. You know, for me personally, you know, I'm a religious individual and that informs my spirituality. I think there are many paths to the realm of uh, the spiritual life. You know, ultimately, it's recognizing the fact that we're, we're human. There's another aspect of spirituality in the book, which is self-actualization. Um, bringing forth your unique potential, seeing what has to be done in this world, what are my unique skills to be able to make a difference in the world, and having the guts to go for it. Anxiety is going to be part of that. You're going to be out on a limb if you're you know, pursuing your real dreams. It's going to feel terrifying, and that's great. And when people get hooked on that, I think that's when a lot of the magic happens. Also in this part of the book where you're talking about the spiritual benefits of anxiety, you have a phrase that I like. You say the spiritual benefit of thinking the worst. What do you mean by that? What's the benefit of thinking the worst? This is a page out of exposure therapy, actually, cognitive behavior therapy for dealing with chronic worry, otherwise known as generalized anxiety disorder. And one of the techniques which was developed, I think initially by Tom Borkovec, is to learn to think the worst as opposed to low levels of worry on a chronic basis. When people worry, they're like, what if I get sick? You know, what if I lose my money? But they don't actually delve into like, no, really, what would it look like the next day after you got abandoned? What would it actually look like to pull up your bank account and see a zero? What would you do next? What would you feel like? How would that impact your relationships? How would that impact everything else? And people don't want to go there. In exposure therapy for worry, for GAD, we encourage people to go there because once we accept how little control we have, we can tolerate uncertainty better. We can tolerate not knowing what's going to happen next. And it makes us more resilient to be able to handle life stressors. So I do think there's a spiritual benefit to this as well, sort of accepting our place in the universe that like, how much can I really control? It's hard to think about, but it's so humbling and very uplifting, ironically, in a certain way. If people want to try this exercise at home, I believe it basically is, you know, catching yourself in low-level worry and just asking systematically, I believe the words you use are, if so, then what would happen? And so yep. just keep going with that to its logical conclusion. Yep. If it gets really amped up and really tough on your own, it might be the kind of thing to speak about with a therapist or at least with a friend or family member. Sometimes it's easier to think the worst when you're not alone. So I'll just throw in that one piece of caution. But yeah, I do think we have to learn to accept those aspects of potential reality. Your fellow Bostonian, Dr. Robert Waldinger, came on yes. the show, fellow Harvard guy too, and used a phrase, and may not be his, but uh, never worry alone. And uh, absolutely love that. That's absolutely great. love that. Just one more question on the spiritual tip here. You talk about the power of prayer. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's a good question. So some of this is informed by my own theology coming from the Jewish faith, but I do think, and I hope, I speak about it in a way that's accessible to people of what I like to say, all faiths or none, whether they do pray or don't. Now, in the CBT world, uh, especially, people think of prayer as a compulsive act that people do in order to cope with uncertainty. That's not the way it was taught to me. And I often think that it's not used in that way within religious communities, Prayer is an act of, well, I mean, at least request prayer is, hey, I'm in trouble. Can you help me out? 
And yes, there's an act of sort of trying to manipulate the heavens, if you will, and trying to cope with one's anxiety. But there's another subtext, which is, I am accepting that I'm not in control of this situation. That, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I can. People talk about it in, in oncology, in psycho-oncology a lot. I have some colleagues who do uh, spiritual research. John Petit is one of them at Harvard Medical School and uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on this type of work. And Tracy of Alboni is another individual, her and her wonderful husband, Michael Balboni. And, you know, some of their work has taught us that there's something that when people are going through a cancer diagnosis, where they will go to treatment, do the best that they can, but there is a letting go of control, which can be facilitated through prayer and other means, which is very healthy for dealing with the situation. People are engaged, they're tapped into reality, but they're also letting go. And when prayer is used in that way to facilitate acceptance, it can be a very positive experience. And anxiety can be parlayed into that to actually interact and give a person, if you will, a spiritual boost. I've definitely seen that. You keep pointing to, right from the beginning here, this issue of control being maybe at the root of our anxiety epidemic. In Buddhism, we'd probably say clinging. If prayer is not on the menu, for example, for me as a, I call myself a friendly agnostic, what are the practices that I could do that would help me let go, see my smallness, see my lack of control, and ease into it? I think contemplating the vulnerability of one situation, one circumstances, you know, thinking if it's once a week, how bad things could really go and really getting to a place of acceptance around that. I could see that being a positive experience, both for emotional resilience and for spiritual growth in whatever way you want to. Yeah, that's probably, that's what's coming to mind. Yeah, I try to do that to play it all the way out and think, all right, so how, if I lose it all, what's that really going to mean? I try to do that somewhat regularly and I always come to like, yeah, you'll be fine. I know my wife will stay with me and uh, I know my son's still going to love me and we'll figure it out. I don't know if I always believe that in my molecules. So I'd like sometimes add a little, the aforementioned Joseph Goldstein likes to teach in phrases, um, little mantras, little slogans you can use when you need them. This does not come from him. This is just something that I started saying to myself, which is you're good. (laughs) You're going to be fine. You know, you may you may lose a bunch of stuff that you're clinging to, but you're good. Right. You're fine. Just to stop the spiral and really pound the intellectual conclusion of it'll be fine at the end of this shitty rainbow into my felt sense. Any of the, what I'm saying makes sense to you? Yeah, it sounds good. You know, I'll only add that even if we have moments of clarity around this and we can't carry it into our day-to-day life, I think it's still worthwhile. You know, it's sort of like we're in the dark and then a lightning bolt goes off and like you can see everything clearly for like a fraction of a second, but then at least you know you're heading in the right direction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, if it's a practice once a week, once a month, sounds like you have a lot to teach. <laughs> I don't know about that. Great. But I've learned a lot from you, speaking of teaching. Don't be surprised if you see me quoting you a lot going forward. Oh, I, I really thanks. love what you're talking about here. Before I let you go, can I just push you to shamelessly plug your new book and any other resources you've put out into the universe? You're very kind. Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. I feel very blessed to have written the book uh, with HarperCollins as an awesome publisher. And uh, it'll be available October 17th, wherever books are sold. All right. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great job. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. David Rossmarin. As you know, he had some incredibly practical things to say about anxiety. If you want to take a deeper dive on this topic, we will put in the show notes a slew of links to previous episodes we've done on anxiety, including interviews with TPH favorites like Dr. Judson Brewer, the meditation teacher Leslie Booker, and the actor and singer Sarah Bareilles. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts. Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a fresh episode with Oren J. Sofer, the great Dharma teacher. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.